0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony. agony. 1988.
1: Small trees had attacked my parents' house at the foundation. They were just seedlings with one or two rigid, healthy leaves. Nevertheless, the stocky shoots had managed to squeeze through knife cracks in the decorative brown shingles covering the cement blocks. They had grown into the unseen wall and it was difficult to pry them loose. My father wiped his palm across his forehead and damned their toughness. Whenever I succeeded in working loose a tiny tree, I placed it like a trophy beside me on the narrow sidewalk that surrounded the house. I thought it was a wonder I thought it was a wonder the treelets had persisted through a North Dakota winter. They'd had water, perhaps, but only feeble light and a few crumbs of earth. Yet each seed had managed to sink the hasp of a root deep and a probing tendril outward. My father stood, stretching his sore back. That's enough, he said, though he was usually a perfectionist. I was unwilling to stop, however, and after he went into the house to phone my mother, I continued to pry at the hidden rootlings. He did not come back out and I thought he must have lain down for a nap as he did now sometimes. You would think then that I would have stopped, a thirteen-year-old boy with better things to do, but on the contrary, as the afternoon passed and everything on the reservation grew quiet and hushed, it seemed increasingly important to me that each one of these invaders be removed down to the very tip of the root where all the vital growth was concentrated. I'd quit at last and was drinking a glass of cool water in the kitchen when my father came out of his nap and entered, disoriented and yawning. He licked his dry lips and cast about, searching for the smell of food, the sound of pots, or the clinking of glasses. What he said then surprised me, although on the face of it his words seemed slight. Where is your mother? His voice was hoarse and dry. I gave him a glass of water. He gulped it down. He didn't say those words again, but the two of us stared at each other in a way that struck me somehow as adult. His look persisted until I dropped my eyes. I had actually just turned 13. Two weeks ago, I'd been 12. At work, I said. It was Sunday, though, thus the hush, the Sunday afternoon suspension. Even if my mother had gone to her sister Clemence's house to visit, Mom would have returned by now to start dinner. We both knew that. Women don't realize how much store men set on the regularity of their habits. We absorb their comings and goings into our bodies, their rhythms into our bones. Our pulse is set to theirs and as always on a weekend afternoon. We were waiting for my mother to start us ticking away on the evening. And so, you see, her absence stopped time. What should we do, we both said at once, which was again upsetting, but at least my father, seeing me unnerved, took charge. Let's go find her, he said, and even then I was glad he was so definite. Find her, not just look for her, not search. We would go and find her. She went to hoop dance, I bet, said my father. Needed something for dinner. Maybe she was going to surprise us, Joe. Even then, tamping down my anxiety as we went looking for my mother, I was aware that something was happening that was in the nature of unusual. A missing mother, a thing that didn't happen to the son of a judge, even one who lived on a reservation. In a vague way, I hoped something was going to happen. Yet when I say I wanted there to be something, I mean nothing bad, but something. That's what I wanted, though, something out of the ordinary, only that. We walked up the dirt driveway. Alongside it, in a strict row, Mom had planted the pansy seedlings she'd grown in paper milk cartons. She'd put them out early, the only flower that could stand a frost. As we came up the drive, we saw that she was still in the car, sitting in the driver's seat before the blank wall of the garage door. My father started running. I could see it, too, in the set of her body, something fixed, rigid, wrong. When he got to the car, he opened the driver's side door. Her hands were clenched on the wheel, and she was staring blindly ahead. We'd seen her intense stare, and we'd laughed then. She's mad at the wasted gas. I was just behind my father. "'careful even then to step over the scalloped pansy leaves and buds. "'He put his hands on hers and carefully pried her fingers off the steering wheel. "'Cradling her elbows, he lifted her from the car. "'She slumped against him, stared past me. "'There was vomit down the front of her dress and soaking her skirt "'and soaking the gray cloth of the car seat, her dark blood. "'Go down to Clément,' said my father. "'Go down and say, I'm taking your mother straight "'to hoop dance emergency. "'Tell them to follow.' "'With one hand, he opened the door to the back seat, "'and then, as though they were dancing in some awful way, "'he maneuvered Mom to the edge of the seat "'and very slowly laid her back, "'helped her turn over on her side. "'She was silent. "'Her face was beginning to swell. "'I went around the other side and got in with her. "'I lifted her head and slid my leg underneath. "'I sat with her, holding my arm over her shoulder.' She vibrated with a steady shudder, like a switch had been flipped inside. A strong smell rose from her, the vomit and something else like gas or kerosene. "'I'll drop you off,' my father said, backing out, the car tires screeching. "'No, I'm coming too. I've got to hold on to her. We'll call from the hospital.' I had almost never challenged my father in word or deed, but it didn't even register between us. I was holding my mother tightly now in the back seat of the car, Her blood was on me. I reached into the back window ledge and pulled down the old plaid quilt we kept there. She was shaking so bad I was scared she would fly apart. Hurry, dad. All right, he said, and we flew there. He had the car up past ninety. We just flew.
0: Louise Erdrich is the author of 14 novels, including Love Medicine, The Beat Queen, The Master Butcher's Singing Club, The Plague of Doves, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and Shadow Tag. She's written children's fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Her new novel is The Roundhouse. Thank you for joining me, Louise. It's a
1: pleasure. Hi.
0: This is a wonderful novel full of borders crossed, transitions made, Journeys from one side to another from which you can and cannot return. And I love that sensibility that we see from really the very first page of this book.
1: Thank you so much. It is about borders of all kinds, physical, psychic, and very much the border between childhood and adulthood, I think. Justice, injustice, the taking on of a child uh, of a a burden that is too great for someone
0: who's 13 really to bear in, in joe coots you uh, he's a 13 year old boy who narrates this novel you have such a, a classic american protagonist uh, like that adolescent boy pre-adolescent from mark twain to ray bradbury we've been experiencing and reading these kind of characters and i just so much loved his voice. Talk about finding and creating his voice.
1: I wanted to find a way to tell this story, which is really about a situation on reservation land that exists exists to this day it's uh it's it's how difficult It's about how difficult crimes of sexual violence are um, to prosecute on reservation land. but I didn't know how I would tell this story until I began to write in this voice, I guess, I didn't know who it was, but suddenly I began to realize that he was a boy. And when I got to this moment where his father said, where is your mother? I really knew that this voice was gonna carry me through, that he was the son of this judge who had been a character in the Plague of Doves. I knew that this voice was going to tell the novel and I can't really explain how I knew or why I felt that confidence but as I wrote I felt an increasing sense of connection to this this character in fact I really I I didn't want to let him go I wanted to keep writing in his voice and I was and when I see the book sitting in its binding and and published I miss the sense of connection that I had with Joe.
0: This is a, a different style for you to write, and you're known for writing your novels in a variety of voices. So this must have been a really strong connection for you between you and, and this young man. And I'm wondering, did that connection carry, obviously, it carried into his life. Did it come back into yours? Did you find yourself looking at your life through the eyes of a 13-year-old boy with that kind of open-minded wonder?
1: Sometimes I think I did. I mean, I I had, I, I was brought back to my own childhood when I had enormous freedom and my bicycle and lived in a small town in North Dakota, and I really didn't have to check in at all times, and I could roam the town and Spend my time as I wish during the day. In the summer, you know, this is this book takes a place across the period of a very small time span. It it takes place across the period of of one summer of Joe's life, and he's looking back. I mean, I had this great, uh, I suppose you'd say it's a writerly advantage, a writer's good fortune to to really discover that I could write in Joe's voice but also be looking back at some time in, in the book. Every so often he can look back because he's seeing it from the vantage point of an adult. But the memory of that summer is so engraved upon him because it is a watershed in his family history and his own growing up that he can remember it very clearly very precisely and clearly, so that sometimes I can move in to the 13-year-old world and then step back and also see it from an adult perspective.
0: Uh, That kind of dual perspective gives it a lot of depth, and it it makes it uh, possible for you to do some interesting structuring of the novel. And uh, I have to say this right away, I love the Star Trek chapter name. I think that you're the
1: was, first person look at
0: every every chapter is okay. is an Star Trek the Next Generation episode, right? Am yes. I right?
1: Yes. You are the first person who's noticed this. Well, you're it. the first person and I ju- I just want to tell you how happy this makes me because no, nobody else has noticed that indeed the first the the, the, the first thing about um most books as you see it, table of contents and chapter headings we don't really have that but every heading is from the first episode and I was amazed as I you know, I went through and watched the first episode I have um, a, f- a member of my family had the first few episodes and in fact everything on VHS tapes so I had these VHS tapes that I looked at and um, I was amazed like every single title worked with the book and the boys would have seen them. Of course, they talk about these episodes all the time. It's part of their private language, and they they love Worf, and they want to. That's the one they want to be. You know, they It's it's their private way of of comprehending the world and making a special, making themselves into a special unit.
0: Well, what's interesting is that it's part of their own. World building within their own lives. Right. And one of the things that I think you've done throughout your career is to, as a bit of world building. In a literary sense, you've built for us the, the entire world of these reservations that, to many of us, is probably more alien than the worlds on Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> and you, it's you interesting bu- to I'm, say. Yeah. Well, you, you yeah. built it. The the religion right. is different. The mm-hmm. culture is different. Right. The economy is different. Yes. The way families unfold is different. Everything is different. And you mm-hmm. spent you know your literary life creating this world and and work. Once you've created it, now it, you're kind of at play in that world.
1: And able to bring in for them what is actually the ver- a very true sense of uh, the way boys embrace pop culture mm-hmm. and make it theirs. I mean, they play Bionic Commando, which is a game that uh, I guess it's gone into hibernation, although I'm sure it will be brought back. But that's their game. And they can speak... For long periods of time in Star Wars lingo, um, and, and they, they, they have a give- and take between them that includes all of their cultural references, plus uh, the particular kind of beer that people drink at the time, and you know these sorts of things. Um, I, I really enjoyed putting that together and putting that into their world.
0: You know, one of the things I noticed you do in your prose, and you do this so well and it's almost achingly sentimental and tender, is to describe the very small and almost trivial objects in rooms, just the little ashtrays and frou-frous that people have in their mm. in their rooms, to to create this really intense sense of time and character.
1: Oh, thank you. You know, I I think I've I, I guess I've done that as a poet, um, that that create that intensity of place, but I also love the way um, Colette writes. And she is so uh, sensual uh, and so dis- matter-of-factly descriptive of the ordinary. And emotional events are so often set into um, relief by, you know, a dropped casserole, by a pair of, a pair of cheap Minnetonka moccasins, as his mom f- floats up the stairs, and they believe she may not return with her soul or her mind intact after this terrible violation of her spirit.
0: Now this is a, a a remarkable work too of crime fiction hmm. and i think that what's so interesting is the milieu in which you've set it the laws are so wild and you talked a little bit about this about how hard it is to prosecute uh, sexual violence in the reservations and the way you describe this the way that it's territory in 10 within 10 feet the laws change completely and i yes. think that's so such a fascinating Place to set a, a novel in which crime plays a central part. Well, I am of course
1: not a legal scholar, and I'm not a crime novelist. This isn't something that I, I, um, uh, that comes naturally to me. I had to really work through this. That's why there's so many thank yous at the end of the book. I really had to talk to people, get a sense of the the terrain, the legal terrain. Um, work through it with people like forensic psychologists and um legal experts. So, it took me a long time to insert the small bits of legality and in history into this book that would bring it together and give it that kind of veracity. Because what I wanted first out of the book really was the emotional connection and the story that ha- that that occurs in the aftermath of a, an act of violence and in the um, in, in the attempt of a f- the story is so much about a family's attempt to heal in the absence of justice
0: one of the things i think that uh, this novel does so well is to you to you know explore that aftermath in spiritual terms and in a place where the normal Border lines between the physical world and the spiritual world are much more permeable than they are in, I was to say, an American suburb, or at least they are mm-hmm. to the people who live there. And I love your sensibility of ghosts uh, because we have, on one hand, uh, Joe's mother is Becoming a ghost, yeah, and, and and I thought that was as I realized that that was what was happening. I thought that he's was becoming such becoming a writhe really. I, I thought that was such an interesting perception and the way that he feels about the graveyard and the ghosts that he's seen there and the the, the way his father talks about them, the kind of matter of fact uh, approach.
1: Yes, this this infuriates Joe. Joe sees what he do, he thinks may be a ghost one night. And he comes down in the morning, and he's already has this ambivalent feeling about his dad, as though he wants to get away from his dad, but he loves his dad, and he can't understand why his mother has retreated from him, and why she just can't come back to life. And then he sees what is some sort of phenomenon. He says he wants his dad to tell him that it doesn't exist, that it's not there. But his father matter-of-factly matter says, "Yes, they're out there." I've seen them, and they're, 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 they are ghosts, and we may have them, and here's where um, I've seen ghosts before, they're a little confused looking, they're wandering around looking for their grave, and yes, I've seen them before, and this makes Joe so angry that he can't really, he wants to be reassured, he wants to know that these, that his world is not going to now have to go into this dimension and he he says oh great now we've got ghosts
0: I I love the sense of family in this book it's so strong and beautiful and we really know them on an intimate level and bringing them bringing us into the family at this moment of crisis it that crisis creates a wedge by which virtue of which we can see um it's like a piece of glass held up to somebody. You, you can see their inner workings better somehow. Yeah. And I'd like you to talk about structuring that in terms of the plot and, and integrating some of these crime fiction elements as you did. Did this novel just flow off the tip of your pen as you spoke in the voice, or did you think about where you were going to go in advance?
1: No, I had to think about every bit of it, of course. Where, and at the same time, well, yes and no because I would structure it and think about it every every day was a also an ad, an adventure in finding out how Joe was going to set up or tell the story or what these boys were going to do to try and and take this into their own hands um, I particularly enjoyed creating some of the characters Linda for instance became more and more Linda is kind of a porcupine-like, pudgy, innocent-seeming character at first, but with very sharp pink fingernails and like little paws. And um, she's a twin. And um, she becomes more and more a sinister character who yet is a helpful character to Joe. And I really enjoyed her transformation during the book. I didn't really think that out, but as it as it went on the book began to gain more uh, momentum and depth and I was pulled along into into the book and into the ending in a way that uh, it, it, it it doesn't always happen but I it I feel like every so often you get a gift as a writer and this book was in many ways a gift to me but it was A gift that was given to me, my my family who, who were so attentive to me and helped me finish the writing of it.
0: When you, uh, one of the things I love all the the his friend, all his characters, his friends, and this kind of you know the the gang of four kids who ride their bikes everywhere. That's a really classic thing, and I mean, took me back to my youth when I would ride my bike everywhere. Yes, me too. It it was it's. What was interesting was your ability to mix joy and some humor into this very intensely tragic situation.
1: Well, I feel as though that is the reality and that is of, of a family, a warm extended family life, that something like this happens, and yet the life around the the healing person is going on at the same time, and there are elders who have the hilari- hilarious um, privilege of teasing the young, and there are um, events that just can't be classified <laughs> like the ghost. But th- And and there are um, elders like Musham, who, at what he says, at 112 years old, still hasn't given up on his love life. You know, these things all swirl around the boys who are very good at getting themselves into trouble, And um, there's a kind of, uh, you know, there's a tremendous sense of family warmth in this, and I can't really explain it except to say that there's a continuum in which violence and sorrow occurs within the context of a family that also is extremely loving and 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 filled with. A disparate element with disparate elements and and every kind of human emotion
0: that's one of the things I think that struck me about this novel was that you really capture the the paradox and the internal contradictions of families people are not consistent. People don't behave the same way. They generally don't behave reasonably. They will think one thing and do another. They will yes. say one thing and do another. Yes. And you really capture that uh, that aspect of the family and, and and all the families in this. And I'm wondering talk about fitting this into your universe as a part of the continuum.
1: Well um, I, th- I I really thank you for, for that insight. I I uh, um I really hoped that that would be the way people saw this. I think so often, for instance, if this is seen as a native novel, people are expecting that there is um, you know, a tremendous dysfunction at the heart of, of, um, of, the, of, of a cultural setting. But what's happened is this is an extremely functional, loving, devoted family that is threatened by an act of extreme violence but i think what's real and true about it is that these people hang together and stay together and that the these 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 ties that that are between them are changed forever but they are able to integrate that change into their lives and as they say they endure they go on and that has been the lesson for me in so many um People and lives and events that I've seen around me, I've always been very moved by the endurance of of native people and of um, indeed this isn't isn't a book. it's a universal human trait, I think, to go on and to continue to do your best in the face of of whatever is thrown at you as
0: Joe and his family does. This book has such a wonderful sense of place and what interested me was that the landscape is desolate but it's not the desolation of the landscape that seems desolate it's mm-hmm. the desolation of what civilization has tried to put there but failed mm-hmm. and that's what really interested me is your portrait of you know a stunted civilization on a on a stark landscape
1: it's interesting that you should say that in the light of the um, the next generation series you know one of the things i regretted not being able to get into this particular book was um the uh the character of the borg who comes later in in the next generation because of course that is the perfect metaphor for how um american culture has absorbed and integrated and attempted to assimilate native culture into itself, isn't it?
0: never thought of it, that is perfect, isn't it?
1: Oh yes, And, and the, the kindliness, the sort of governmental, if you will, kindliness that is so um, sort of 19th century, but continued on throughout the 1950s of we will, we will embrace you, we will let you, we will be part of you, we will become you, we will absorb you. And yet, um, so yes, I regretted not being able to get that in. But this, but that for me was the ultimate um, um, message that was uh, up until the seventies the the way that that the government really handled dealing with native people, and up until the idea that native nations could be sovereign people within the borders of the united states um, there was nothing but assimilation so the persistence of native culture in the face of the borg if you will (laughs) or the face of so much uh desperation to make native nations into ordinary um, all American citizens, that persistence, I think, is valiant. And it's something to celebrate. It's something that should be celebrated and admired
0: and cherished. It's a it's a truly, uh, it's the perfect example of American individualism in the face of, uh, uh, you know, being asked to cooperate. Mm-hmm.
1: It is. It is, if you call the... Are call Native Americans first Americans? Well, it is the exact um, image of of what our culture is purported to be all about.
0: The rugged individual. Yeah, yeah. I'd like you to talk a little bit about fitting. The world of this book into your greater world, and where you're going to go next. Do you know where you're going to go next?
1: Well, I really don't. You know, I it's it's it gets uh, more and more. It seems more and more unobtainable and far away as I as I even talk about this book. It, it, there is an odd feeling of um, disconnection that starts to happen when, as I say, the book is put away into its bindings and its not quite mine anymore. So when I go back and I'm able to write again, I'll be able to see what's going on. I think there'll be a third book in this trilogy, but I've also been working on uh, a book that my my daughter who, an artist, Aza, has responded to one of my stories with a graphic, um, we we're talking about doing a sort of graphic set of short stories, perhaps novel together, something that um, was started with the story Nero.
0: Well, that sounds very fascinating. I've been speaking with Louise Erdrich. Her new novel is The Roundhouse. Thank you for joining me, Louise.
1: It's been a complete pleasure, Rick. Thank you so much. (music) ¶¶